This is ReachMD, and you're listening to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer, sponsored by Lilly. Here's your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill. The therapeutic landscape for non-small cell lung cancer is rapidly evolving as a growing number of local, systemic, and combination treatments are being introduced with hopes of improving survival rates and preserving quality of life. But the challenge is still daunting against a disease representing the most common cause of cancer mortality worldwide, with more than half of patients presenting with stage 4 disease at diagnosis. On today's program, we'll take a closer look at various recommended first-line systemic therapies, the rationales behind single agents versus combinations, and strategies to guide patients through their treatment course. Welcome to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and joining me is Dr. Stephen Liu, a practicing thoracic medical oncologist and associate professor of medicine at the Lombardi Comprehensive Cancer Center of Georgetown University. Dr. Liu, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. Well, we're happy that you're here too. So let's start with a refresher on the main factors you and your colleagues consider toward each patient's diagnosis of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer and how this informs your first-line treatment choices. So what are these factors? Well, I think the first step is to identify what specific type of lung cancer a patient has. Now, we can appreciate that lung cancer is really a family of related cancers with unique properties and unique vulnerabilities. So it's important we identify those vulnerabilities and use them to really tailor an individual treatment plan. For years, we've uh, classified cancers based on their histology. And in the lung world, that would be squamous, adeno, large cell. Now we really need to understand the underlying biology. Are there genomic driver mutations or fusions present? Is this a cancer likely to respond to an immunotherapy-based approach? We also need to know how the cancer is affecting the patient. What symptoms is it causing? Is it threatening any specific organs? What is the the pace of growth, the acuity of a disease, the specific clinical circumstances that are going to guide our treatment decisions? And we also have to consider the individual traits of each patient. You know, are there relevant comorbidities, specific organ dysfunction, such as hepatic or renal insufficiency? What's the patient's performance status, Uh, the existing social support distance uh, to the cancer center, and and really the goals of treatment for that patient? We have to take all of that and really identify what are the important values that we need to adopt uh, as we move forward together with the patient. Well, let's consider the various therapeutic classes that are out there. Which types of treatments have become or are on their way to becoming staples of first-line therapy? And is it a crowded field of options for oncologists? You know, I think it is becoming more crowded, but obviously that's a a good thing for our patients. And if we identify a driver alteration and sequencing, targeted therapy really is the, the therapeutic class we need to focus on. We now have multiple agents approved for the treatment of lung cancer, harboring mutations in EGFR, BRAF, or fusions in ALK, ROS1, or NTRAC. Uh, and in those settings, I really think the latest generation of agents provide the highest efficacy uh, and the most favorable safety profile. Uh, an example would be the third-generation EGFR kinase inhibitor, osimertinib. This offers a better progression-free survival, better CNS response, uh, and a clear survival benefit when compared to the first-generation inhibitors like erlotinib, jacitinib. And the next-generation ALK inhibitors, sort of the same story. Uh, in two randomized phase three trials, electinib and brigadinib both had a far greater progression-free survival and much more CNS activity uh, than first-generation crizotinib. With those drugs, we can achieve a median progression-free survival approaching three years. Uh, in someone with metastatic lung cancer, I think that's quite remarkable. Uh, but beyond those standard targets, it's important to know 
that there are many other viable targets uh, where we have agents pretty far in development and a lot of very accessible trials. And I think that we're not far from those being standard for both testing and treatment. And we also have some exciting drugs in development that can target KRAS, which not too long ago was thought to be an undruggable target. So uh, to be really sure we're treating patients in the optimal manner, we need full sequencing, preferably RNA-based, and that's critical to proper management. And settings where we don't identify a target, early introduction of immunotherapy really is the preferred approach. We have studies showing benefit with immunotherapy alone, uh, the PD-1 inhibitor pembrolizumab, and the pdl one inhibitor, atezolizumab, both improve survival compared to chemotherapy alone in tumors that, that highly express pdl one uh, And we have combinations where we're combining immunotherapy with chemotherapy, and those are options that are independent of pdl one expression. Uh, carboplatin, pemetrexed, pembrolizumab, and carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, atezolizumab, both FDA-approved for non-squamous lung cancer. Carboplatin uh, and ataxane, either paclitaxel or, or nabpaclitaxel, for, uh, with pembrolizumab for patients with squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, so to answer the question, it is quite crowded, and in the, the coming years, it will become more crowded, not less. Uh, but the key is really tailoring those treatment options to each specific individual patient uh, for the best possible outcome. Now, what about the roles of local therapies via treatment modalities such as radiotherapy, surgical resections, and thermal ablations? You know, do these have a defined place and sequence in the early treatment of advanced non-small cell lung cancer? Yeah, so I think this is an important point. You know, we had historically reserved local therapy for patients with early stage lung cancers. Uh, but an important development over the recent years is the appreciation that there are some patients with stage four lung cancer who benefit from a more aggressive approach. Uh, we use the term oligometastatic disease uh, or oligometastatic cancer. Uh, and it really comes from the realization that cancer is from that, uh, someone who has lung cancer with a solitary brain metastasis versus a cancer with many other sites of disease, diffuse involvement in many organs. Those cancers probably represent different biologies and can probably be treated differently. When there's diffuse involvement, I think systemic therapy really is the mainstay of treatment. But if there's one site, or two sites of disease outside of the lung, incorporating radiation, ablation, uh, even surgery with systemic therapy can really lead to long-term control uh, and, and possibly cure for, for some patients. Excellent. For those of you who are just tuning in, you're listening to Closing the Gaps in Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Liu on the various first-line systemic therapies for patients with advanced metastatic disease. So, Dr. Liu, let's focus on the role of combination therapies for a moment, since there's a fair amount of debate over whether first-line treatments should incorporate chemoimmunotherapies at the start or stick with monotherapies until the second line. What are your thoughts on this? You know, the initial approval of checkpoint inhibitors for advanced non-small cell lung cancer was in the second-line setting, after multiple randomized phase three trials showed a clear superiority over second-line docetaxel. And we had large phase three trials with pembrolizumab, nivolumab, and atezolizumab that all provided superior survival and the more favorable toxicity when compared to docetaxel. And now, docetaxel was a lower bar. This was then followed by first-line trials that compared pembrolizumab alone to chemotherapy uh, or combinations with pembrolizumab or atezolizumab to chemotherapy. And those also showed uh, a benefit to early use. So on one side, there's the argument that patients not given the most aggressive combination therapies up front may not survive long enough for the second-line treatments. But on the other hand, there are questions on whether survival rates are really all that different. 
as well as major quality of life impacts. So how do you typically respond to these contrasting views? You know, personally, I'm a strong advocate for early use of immunotherapy in the treatment of lung cancer. You know, we have phase three randomized studies that show in the first line setting, the early introduction of immunotherapy improves survival, and it doesn't really come at a cost of worsening quality of life. The quality of life data, uh, the symptom control data has been very reassuring, and, and I really have very few concerns about tolerability. You know, adverse events can be seen with checkpoint inhibitors, but they're generally well-managed, and, and severe events are relatively infrequent. In fact, the safety profile for checkpoint inhibitors alone is consistently better than chemotherapy in the second-line and the front-line setting. And when we combine it with chemotherapy, uh, the addition is not clinically significant. Uh, in my experience, combinations are tolerated just as well as chemotherapy alone, and importantly, symptoms often improve because the symptoms are driven by that cancer, and if we get the most effective treatment for that cancer, general patients feel better. But a lot of the decision is, is a healthy respect for the disease. You know, lung cancer is an unforgiving and unpredictable disease. And if you wait, you may lose that opportunity. And if I have a patient who is destined to receive long-term benefits from immunotherapy, it's really a shame, I think a tragedy, if I don't give them the opportunity to get that benefit. Wow. Well, given all these considerations, what are some methods you use to help counsel patients towards selecting the right treatment plans for them? In general, I think it's important to lay out options, but you also have to make recommendations. And you know, whether targeted therapy or immunotherapy, our studies have consistently favored using our best drug first. And saving treatments for later use uh, is just not a viable strategy in, in non-small cell lung cancer. So I think as an oncologist, it's our job to identify what the best drug is um, for that individual patient. And while you know, I acknowledge uncertainty, I make a point to provide a clear recommendation to each patient uh, and really explain the reasoning behind it. If we look at those with a driver ulceration, I recommend the most effective targeted agent, which often uh, is the most recent, latest generation of the drug. And sequencing kinase inhibitors is a strategy that I'm not too fond of. While at first blush, it may seem that, that having more drugs in reserve and moving from one drug to the next drug is an appealing strategy. I think biologically, each step that you take increases the biologic complexity, increases the heterogeneity. Uh, in inducing alternate forms of resistance. And so I think that cancer becomes more and more difficult to treat. Now, I'd rather use a much more comprehensive latest generation kinase inhibitor upfront and so forth, e.g. if I prefer osimertinib upfront rather than sequencing a first or second followed by a third. For ALK, I would prefer alectinib or brigatinib upfront rather than saving it for, for subsequent lines of therapy. Uh, and for those with no alteration, I recommend immunotherapy, uh, absolutely, either in uh, alone but usually in combination with chemotherapy. Uh, but we have to be willing to adapt our treatment algorithms um, to each patient, each, each specific clinical circumstance. Now, looking ahead, what treatment approaches are coming into practice or on the horizon that look promising to you for making positive impacts on patient care? You know, we're making tremendous progress in the field of, of targeted therapy. We're identifying new targets. We're enhancing our upfront approach and overcoming resistance. Uh, and I think a major development is how to be more comprehensive in our initial efforts. Um, rather than focusing on salvage, on relapse, on overcoming resistance, I really think the greatest gains will be in preventing resistance. Uh, and often this can be by combining therapeutic modalities. By doing that, we can eliminate more of these malignant subclones, try to reduce some of that heterogeneity up front um, for a given patient, and hopefully improve the depth of response and the length uh, of, of response for, for our first-line treatment strategies. And I think a good example is combining chemotherapy with targeted therapy. You know, this is an important step in that direction, and, and I don't think chemotherapy needs to continue indefinitely. 
but if we can eliminate some of the clones today that would have given rise to an aggressive relapse two years from now, I think we can significantly uh, improve long-term survival. So I think combinations incorporating alternate modalities such as angiogenesis and chemotherapy with a targeted approach up front uh, are really going to be uh, the better answer long-term. And with immunotherapy, we need new biomarkers within each person's cancer that can help tailor an immunotherapy approach. Uh, that's going to be incredibly challenging uh, because the immune system is very dynamic, very individual, but there are important studies underway now that are going to lead us down that right path. Wow. Well, this has been a really great review as well as a promising glimpse forward on lung cancer treatments. I'd really like to thank my guest, Dr. Stephen Liu, for joining me today. Dr. Liu, it was wonderful having you on the program. My pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. This program was sponsored by Lilly. To revisit any part of this discussion and to access other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com NSCLC, where you can be part of the knowledge. Thanks for listening.